Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm Jim Dubois. The student government at the University of Minnesota's Twin Cities campus recently led a charge to rename four campus buildings whose namesakes were accused of racism, anti-Semitism, and promoting eugenics. Former U President Eric Kaler, who stepped down last month, created a task force to research the actions of the men after whom the buildings are named. The panel released its findings earlier this year and recommended that the buildings should be renamed. In late April, the university's Board of Regents voted against renaming the buildings. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, we'll hear about a class being offered this fall semester that will address the renaming controversy and take a critical look at the university's past history. Later in the program, we'll chat with the course's instructor, history adjunct professor Joseph Haker. But first, a conversation with Ann Waltner, a professor and chair of the history department at the U of M. We spoke with her by phone. Professor Waltner, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. I'm happy to be here. Tell us about the task force that looked into the university's past in response to demands to rename some campus buildings. Why was this panel necessary? Well, the panel was constituted actually at the direction of President Taylor. And I think it was largely in response to concerns by students. The Minnesota Student Association passed a resolution requesting that Kaufman in particular be renamed. And I think the president felt that it was important to investigate the histories of people that the buildings were named after to see what the what the trajectories of their careers were like, to see what their contributions were, and to see ways in which their contributions were somewhat problematic. So the panel was actually doing historical work, but it was not composed entirely of history faculty. There were people from a number of departments in it did its work at the behest of the president, and the co-chair of it was um, John Coleman, the dean of the College of Liberal Arts. A 125-page report was produced for the Board of Regents. In late April of this year, the board voted by a 10-to-1 margin not to rename the buildings. What did the report find, and why do you think the board was not in favor of the name changes? Well, what the report found was that, and I don't, I don't have it in front of me now, so I'm not going to go into a, a lot of detail, but what the report found in general was the four gentlemen involved were involved in formulating policies that were racist and or anti-Semitic, um, including things like segregating dormitories, discouraging students from applying, and, and that sort of thing. And I think that the task force came to the conclusion that renaming would be something to do as a way of moving forward. I mean, for example, the uh, multicultural student associations are in Kaufman Hall. Under Kaufman's leadership, none of those students would have been allowed to attend the university. And I think that they feel like being in that building is offensive and somehow 
diminishes their their presence. And I think the regents disagreed with the task force report at many levels. I think the regents felt like there were many good things that Kaufman and goodness, I'm not even remembering all all of their names now. Uh, that was Nicholson, Coffee, and Middlebrook as right. well. That right, thank you. Um, that they did many things that were good for the university, and there's no disputing that they did do things that were good for the university. And I think they also felt like renaming would be erasing history or rewriting history. And of course, the irony of that is historians are rewriting history all the time. So I think that that was a large part of it. I think also, and this is part of the reason I think that we decided it was important to develop the course, I think it's very hard to come to terms with things like a racist past. I mean, I, you know, I think it's hard for us to come to terms with the fact that we live on land that was basically stolen from indigenous people. It's hard to come to terms with the fact that much of the wealth of our country was built on the backs of slaves. It's, it's hard to know what to do with that knowledge of your past, but I think without kind of a clear-sighted view of things that happened in the past that we really rather had not happened, it's a little bit hard to move forward. Were these men controversial in their time? Yes, they were. They were very controversial in their times. There, there's correspondence in the task force report that shows that they were controversial. And the exhibit, A Campus Divided, that was curated by Ravel and Prell and, and others, clearly demonstrates that what was happening at Minnesota at that time was not simply something that was happening everywhere, that during the, the period of the 30s and 40s, many of the Big Ten universities were integrated. Um, and so so it's, it's not that... I think the, the defense that, oh, they were just people of their time does not hold water. And this is something that I don't think is in the task force report, and I believe it to be true, although I, I didn't do the research myself, but I've been told that the University of Minnesota is the only college in Minnesota that did not accept Japanese-American students during World War II. They were relocated from the coast deep inland um, rather than being interned, and virtually every college in Minnesota took them, but the University of Minnesota refused. So there's a pattern of behavior that did not actually fit into what the mainstream at the time was. Is the fear of re-examining the past in today's context legitimate? For example, are there many historical figures who would actually comport with today's standards? Wouldn't we find questionable opinions and actions by many of some of our most revered historical figures and leaders? Yes, um, one would. But that's not a reason not to re-examine them. I mean, I think that most historians of early America say that there are two key flaws 
in early American politics and even the framing of the Constitution. And one is the failure to come to terms with slavery, and the other is the failure to come to terms with indigenous people. I mean, historians don't brush over those things. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't name buildings after Jefferson and, and Madison and Monroe. I mean, I think the, the question of what you do with the knowledge of people who who have complicated pasts and who do things that would no longer be acceptable is a different question. But I think that we can't simply say, oh, well, you know, they were different times and they had different values and it's really okay that the Founding Fathers had slaves and it's really okay that the Dakota War is just something that happened. I mean, I think that we we do need to apply um, critical analysis to those things. The U's football stadium is named for a bank, and we should say that naming rights for stadia are now very common both in professional and collegiate sports. But naming a building after a corporate entity or even giving a building just a number, is that a safer way to avoid controversy? Or will any potential wrongdoings, for example, by a company after which a building is named, be scrutinized as well? Well, um, I mean, I think that the stadium wasn't named to honor the bank. The stadium was named because the bank gave bundles of money. But yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think that that's a really valid point. That Corporations are, are, if anything, even more fallible than human beings. For a long time, the building that the history department was in was called Social Science Tower. Um, and there have been people who suggested that functional names are easier to deal with than, than naming after people who may be revealed to be flawed. But I think it, the issue of naming is a complicated issue. But I think in a way, the issue of naming can be separated from the issue of investigating the past. What you do about naming once you've kind of uncovered these stories is, I think, something that reasonable people could differ on. And I don't think the regents had that conversation. I think the regents simply dismissed the task force report. We can imagine that potentially many students and non-students really don't care so much about the name on a building. Uh, They may not even know who that person was. In the end, why does the name of a building matter? Well, you know, I think that this was stirred up by students. I think the Minnesota Students Association passed a resolution to ask that the buildings be renamed. It may not be a majority of students who are who are interested. In fact, I think there were polls done that I'm not able to recount correctly now, but that I think probably did show that faculty were more interested than students. I mean, I think that there is a way in which what building names do is they suggest what about the past you are honoring. And I think, in fact, that is why the naming or renaming was so controversial because there were people who felt like what these men had done for the university did in fact deserve to be honored and that removing the names would besmirch their reputations. So I I think in a way the controversy about naming really did suggest ways in which it is important. 
Ann Waltner is a professor and chair in the history department at the University of Minnesota. Professor Waltner, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. You're welcome. Joining us by phone is Joseph Haker, an adjunct professor of history at the U, who's teaching a course this fall semester titled Prejudice and Protest at the U of M. Professor Haker, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. What made you want to turn the recent building renaming controversy into a class? Well, I'm a a recent graduate of the Ph.D. program at the History Department, so I was not actually involved in the decision to create the class. Um, That was the the History Department leadership, and they asked me to teach it. But a couple of years ago, I taught a class that responded to the A Campus Divided exhibit, as well as the events in Charlottesville. And so that class focused on spaces like monuments and statues and building names where American history is kind of openly contested. And so this course seemed like a a logical extension of that, but one that would take a much more direct and focused look at the history of the U of M. And so I was excited to teach it because I thought it was a great response to the naming controversy to have a class where you could spend time thoughtfully and meticulously sort of going through this history, uh, put it into its appropriate context, and give students an opportunity to really think about what the implications should be for our present. And, you know, beyond that, uh, this is a particularly fun kind of subject to teach, you know, these questions of commemoration and collective memory. Um, I think because they're so important and so divisive right now within contemporary politics, and and they, they have such immediate relevance to a lot of students, so I suspect we'll have a lot of discussion of a diversity of viewpoints, and that always makes for a pretty dynamic class. And, you know, the, the subject itself, I think it's still relatively novel to have this kind of um, reflective course that examines the history and the problems of the institution where it's being taught. And so in that sense, it's, it's a really interesting experiment that I'm hoping will push forward the, the conversation about campus. Well, tell us more about the class. What will students be studying, and what more do you hope they will find beyond what was already examined by the task force? One thing I really want to do is to put these specific stories of discrimination and protest at the U into a larger local or national context, you know, during their era, Um, you know, to take a sort of 10,000-foot view so that we can better fully understand what we're looking at. I don't think you can understand Lotus Kaufman, you know, of, of Kaufman Union, president of the university during the 2030s, outside of the fact that he was sort of deeply inspired by the progressive era. And, and that, you know, so understanding what the progressive era was all about helps to explain, you know, for one, his, his commitment to improving and expanding access to higher education, but also the way in which his decisions and ideas were, were rooted in race, science, and eugenics. Another example, I want to closely look at the surveillance of Jewish students by the university leadership during the 20s, 30s, and 40s. But also, I think we have to put that into a local context where, you know, Minneapolis was notorious for institutionalized anti-Semitism at that time, and a national context where you had political reactionaries who closely associated Jewishness with radical subversion. I don't think you can understand what's happening at the U outside of that context. We'll we'll explore how the activism of these African-American and Jewish students in Minnesota in the 30s needs to be connected to this increasingly powerful and coherent civil rights movement in the 30s. 
And then I also want to push those stories forward beyond the 40s, beyond the 50s, toward the present. And so that students will hopefully come out of the class with some sort of sense of how the university that they, you know, they inhabit right now is connected to these policies and protests in the past. So, for instance, we'll look at the, the Morrill Hall takeover in 1969, when black students occupied Morrill Hall to protest campus racism and to demand an African-American studies department. And, um, you know, I was talking to a former student about the closing of the General College in 2005, which was at the time about 50% students of color when it closed and, you know, had a sort of tremendous impact on the, on the campus community. And we'll look at various moments of protest on campus in between. And then the other thing that I'm particularly invested in is that the course is, is going to give students a, a space to identify and research maybe another story of protest or prejudice at the U of M. And, you know, hopefully, who knows, maybe they'll uncover something new. And I would imagine that controversies over names on campus buildings that might be uh, uh, assigned to an historical person who uh, may have done some nefarious things in the past, that kind of conversation, I imagine, is not unique to the University of Minnesota. Will the class be examining other buildings and landmark name changes at other universities that have sparked controversy? Yeah, I think it has to. And you're absolutely right. This is not at all unique to Minnesota. It seems to be part of a much larger kind of diffuse movement to rethink institutional histories and, and to rename buildings. And so I, I think that's one of the first topics we'll cover in the class. I think it's important for us to ask questions about, um, you know, what similarities are shared across these campus controversies from, you know, Minnesota to Yale to Duke. What is being protested in these different places? And, you know, in particular, why this specific moment that we're living in is seeing such a push to re-examine the American past. And so I, I think talking about those questions early on will help to give the course a, a framework and a sense of, of purpose for the rest of the semester. Will you be discussing some other name controversies in Minnesota that have uh, come up lately? For example, the uh, controversy over Lake Calhoun, Bidet Makaska, or a historic Fort Snelling at Bidote? Uh, that was something that we... Uh, covered pretty heavily in the previous class. I think that this class is going to be very specifically focused on U of M. So while they're certainly relevant for students to discuss and to come up, I I don't think it'll be a specific focus of this class. Is the push to rename buildings unique to this time, or is this country in a constant process of examining how we represent our history? Well, you know, the phenomenon of, of renaming buildings or, or tearing down statues is, is certainly not unique uh, to this era, but I, I do think the intensity and the sheer number of these controversies is relatively new and recent. And, and you know, there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, I think something that's probably not discussed enough and that we should also try to understand is that, um, you know, the late 19th and and 20th centuries were a period of unusually intense commemoration. It was a period of, of unusual intensity in putting up buildings or, or statues and monuments and names. And so you have all of these monuments going up that are trying to create this intense sense of national unity and consensus after the Civil War in the face of enormous European immigration um, you know, into the Cold War. You know, you're trying to create this unified consensus view of American history. 
but as a lot of American historians have demonstrated, uh, much of this commemoration, you know, sort of was intensely exclusionary, was often rooted in, in white supremacy. And so I think these contemporary movements to rename are actually kind of a response to what has preceded us um, and, a, and a recognition that American history, as it's traditionally commemorated, has been one based on, you know, the exclusion of a very large number of people in this country whose, whose histories have often been, been ignored. And I, I think that's where it's kind of coming from. Some people contend that we should not try to sanitize the past because the actions or inactions of historical figures must be viewed in the context of the times in which they lived. What do you say to people who disagree with changing the names of buildings and places whose namesakes have controversial pasts? Well, first, I would suggest that this is in, in no way an example of sanitizing the past. Quite the opposite. If anything, protests over naming and, and memory make the history of the United States messier and, and more complex. Right? Like, we have to consider the history of this country and its institutions from uh, perspectives that have previously been silenced by traditional, what are actually sort of sanitized histories. And we have to now account for the real lived experiences of, of millions of people whose histories were silenced on account of their skin color or their gender or their religion, so on. You know, so looking at Lotus Kaufman, not only from the perspective of the white students who largely benefited from his policies, but also from the students of color that he systematically discriminated against, it's certainly not really, I don't think, sanitizing anything. I think it's the opposite of that. But I obviously agree that historical figures should be understood in the context of the time that they lived in. Um, but I think that there are two problems, at least two problems, with that as a response controversies over naming and memory. One is that the people who use that line tend to assume that the context of the time was more simple and more homogenous than it actually was, right? So, for instance, people often use the, you know, we have to understand him in the context of the time as a defense of, of Andrew Jackson and Indian removal. Well, in fact, a huge percentage of even white Americans found Indian removal deeply objectionable, and it, and it sparked one of the largest protest movements in American history at that point. You know, so it was, it was possible for people in the 1830s to understand that ethnic cleansing was wrong. And, and similarly, there were many people, including many white people, who believed that segregation was wrong when, when Lotus Kaufman or Nicholson were in power. And there were many people who knew that surveilling students and associating them with subversion on the basis of their religious identity was, was bad, right? So, so, I mean, we are understanding them in a much more nuanced context, I think, by doing this. And then the other problem is that building names and statues aren't repositories of history, right? It's not a space where we sort of catalog our history. They're examples of collective memory. So people say, if you change the building name, you know, you're erasing history. Well, no, you aren't, right? The history is still there. It's still accessible. Statues, monuments, building names, those are intended to instill a sense of identity in a particular group of people. They're supposed to help tell a narrative of who we are and where we came from and what our values are. You know, so naming a lake after the architect of secession and the arch defender of slavery tells us a very specific tale about who we are and what our values are. And it does so through excluding specific groups of people 
belonging, and name, likewise naming a student union after a segregationist and a eugenicist tells a very specific tale of who belongs in that student union, right? So uh, from my mind, renaming doesn't erase the history of Lotus Kaufman. It tells a different story of who we are, who we want to be, and what our values are, if that makes sense. Joseph Haker is an adjunct professor at the University of Minnesota. He will be teaching an upcoming class titled Prejudice and Protest at the U of M. Professor Haker, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. How does the news media handle issues of race and comments by elected officials that many consider to be racist? Next week on Dialogue Minnesota, veteran journalist and former executive director of the Minnesota News Council, Gary Gilson, joins us with his insights on the ethical issues that journalists face when reporting on racially charged issues. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.